Our text this evening is taken from Psalm 96. Before we read that chapter, though, we're going to read the preceding psalm, Psalm 95, which the elders will use as we meditate together in family visitation on the theme, Worship in the Church. So we're going to read first Psalm 95. O come, let us sing unto the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving, and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his, and he made it and his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if he will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation, and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Now we read Psalm 96. Notice the similarity between the two psalms already in how they begin. O sing unto the Lord a new song, sing unto the Lord all the earth, sing unto the Lord, bless his name, show forth his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein, then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. We call your attention this evening, especially to verse 9 of Psalm 96. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him 
all the earth. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this week the elders begin that annual and very important season of family visitation. And as is customary in their visits to discuss a theme, they ask that I preach this evening a sermon to introduce that theme, and that theme is the worship of the church based on Psalm 95. So as not to interfere with the elders' personal development of that text, of that passage, I chose to select my text this evening from Psalm 96. But if you compare the two psalms, you find they're very similar. Psalm 96 begins in a way that's very similar to Psalm 95. It it simply expands on some of the concepts set forth in that psalm. And the primary concept is that of our calling to worship Jehovah our God. It's evident from both chapters and from a multitude of passages in Holy Scripture that to worship God is the highest of all religious obligations. You and I, as well as all creatures, are called to worship Jehovah. We are, in the words of Psalm 29, verse 2, to give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That word worship is used 108 times in Scripture, showing us the importance of what is our obligation. And while the word is used 108 times, there are a multitude of other passages that, without using the word worship, issue the same calling. We sang from one of them, Psalm 100. Fundamentally, worship, according to the idea of that term, is to bow the knee towards God. To worship Jehovah is to acknowledge him as the absolutely sovereign Lord, the only true God who is worthy of all honor and glory. So worship must characterize our whole life. Even as we read in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Love for God resounds in worship of him. But scripture also speaks very clearly of a special service of worship. And I refer now to the public worship of the living God by his church. The public assembly of the church is a special covenantal gathering in which God and his people fellowship together. Those whom God has gathered and redeemed with the precious blood of his own dear son come together in the presence of their redeemer, listening to him and responding to him 
in commanded acts of, of faith and love. Such is public worship. The church gathers before the sovereign Jehovah, the Holy One. He speaks and they bless him in return. Such worship, if it is to be true worship, must be the worship of God who reveals himself in his word. But that we worship God as the only true God, the Holy One, means not only that we worship him as he has revealed himself, but also how he himself requires us to worship him. The fact that we enter the very presence of God in worship means not only that there are general principles to be observed in that worship of the living God, but that God himself sets the boundaries within which our Christian liberty may be exercised. And that includes even the elements of worship. If we want truly to honor and praise the King of Kings in our worship, we will willingly subject ourselves to his desires rather than trying to please him in our own way and by our self-determined standards. Because not only the act of worship, but the content of that worship is important to him. Let's be reminded, worship is not entertainment. Worship is not about us and what makes us feel good. Worship is about God. God alone is to be worshipped. And he alone has the right to demand of us the worship that he desires the worship in a particular manner. So it's a pertinent subject that the elders have selected. There's always pressure put upon the church to change. And usually that call comes with the motive of making the church more appealing to those who don't have a church background. After all, the worship practices that we maintain are worship practices that go back nearly 500 years now when, to the years when John Calvin restored biblical worship to the church of Jesus Christ. But culture has seen many changes since then. So the question naturally arises... Isn't there a way to make worship more appealing to outsiders? But that question and many associated questions really makes worship all about the worshipers and not the one who alone is to be worshipped. But this also calls our attention to the necessity of a biblical understanding. You see, mere tradition will never withstand change. There have to be reasons for that tradition, reasons that are understood 
if that tradition is important enough to be maintained. We must not worship God merely as a matter of tradition. Our worship must be in spirit and in truth. And therefore, from the moment we enter the sanctuary, and actually for several hours before, we must come with a proper attitude and understanding into the presence of the living God, whose name is Jehovah. It must be our desire as a congregation more perfectly and sincerely to to render to Jehovah the worship that is his due. So this evening, from Psalm 96, verse 9, I call your attention to worshiping the Holy One. And we see from this passage that such worship is covenantal worship, first of all, holy worship, secondly, And finally, fearful worship. You and I, according to the words of this text, are called to worship Jehovah. Worship is the highest expression of God's covenant of grace. The covenant, as God has revealed it in Scripture, is that relationship of infinite love and fellowship that God enjoys within his own triune being, but also establishes with his people outside himself in Jesus Christ. The eternal and infinite God takes us into the fellowship of his own family life. And when you and I, his people, come together to worship that blessed reality comes to highest expression. Worship is fellowship with the living God. The highest living expression of God's covenant of grace with us. Do you think of worship in those terms? Fellowship with the living God. Jesus himself reminds us of this when he says in Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Fellowship with the living God in Christ Jesus. That's worship. In the fellowship of his saints, Christ appears to reveal to them the love of the Father. And we must realize, people of God, when we come together to worship This is not simply a social gathering. This is not just you and your relatives and some friends and the preacher talking about God. God himself is in our midst, in Jesus Christ. And if we truly worship him, we enter that fellowship with the living God. The most fundamental element of that fellowship is conversation. Conversation. Worship is holy conversation. 
Conversation is the most fundamental element of fellowship. Whether we speak of the fellowship of a husband and wife, of parents and children, or of friends and saints within the family of God, the household of faith, the communion that they share is a communion of conversation. Even one who is deaf and mute must learn to communicate in order to have fellowship with others. Conversation is the expression of our fellowship in which we speak to one another in, of our hopes and, and our desires, our sorrows and our fears, our joys and our excitements. By conversation, we seek advice and counsel from those with whom we are close. We seek comfort and encouragement to support us in the distresses and trials of our lives. We offer sympathy and words of comfort to those in need to help them bear the burden and the sorrows of life. All these things take place by means of conversation. The expression of covenant fellowship with Jehovah is found in that conversation of worship. Because worship is indeed a holy conversation between God and his people. And at the center of worship is the preaching of God's word. The word at its very heart is God's promise to his people, his assurance that in the face of all their troubles, his promise will be fulfilled by him who is faithful. It will be fulfilled for Christ's sake. Through the word of the gospel, as it comes to us in what Paul refers to as the foolishness of preaching, God in Christ speaks to us, his people. He reveals himself to us by that holy conversation. He shows us his great glory, the majesty of his being, his infinite holiness and perfect righteousness. He shows us his mercy and love. He shows us his abounding grace. He he reveals that he alone is God. And he is good. He shows us that he knows us through and through. Nothing escapes him. He doesn't hesitate to expose our sins and weaknesses. He tells us he has no fellowship with unrighteousness, that he will surely punish all workers of iniquity, and that we ourselves are sinners who cannot find fellowship with him, except first his justice is satisfied. But he also gives us the good news of our everlasting righteousness in Christ Jesus, of that salvation that is ours in Christ, and by which he has separated us out of the human race, 
for reasons which he alone knows, because there was no reason in us for which he should love us. He points us to Christ, points us to his only begotten Son, come into our flesh, given for us willingly to walk the way of the cross that we might be partakers of this great fellowship, that we might indeed participate in covenant worship with Jehovah God. He tells us of his counsel, of his will, which encompasses everything that takes place in heaven and on earth. He reveals to us great and glorious things. And as God speaks to us, his people, through the preaching of the word, as well as those other elements of the worship service in which the minister speaks in God's name, we respond in holy conversation. We respond in speech to God. And our initial response is that to this wonder that the Almighty God would come down to our level and speak to us, our initial response is to praise Him. Shall we not praise Him who would stoop so low as to initiate conversation with us? So, We speak to God. We speak to him in song. And that's indeed the calling set before us in the opening verses of both Psalm 95 and Psalm 96. We praise him with the words which he gave us to glorify him. So Psalm 95 verse 2 calls us to make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. And in the songs of Zion that we sing, we not only praise him, we enter into fellowship with him. We pour out our souls to him, giving expression to our deepest thoughts, our spiritual desires, our needs. We enter into prayer, another form of covenant conversation. We express our thankfulness to the God of our salvation, our friend, sovereign, Jehovah. We thank him for who he is and what he has done for us. And because he would also have us approach him with all our needs, we tell him our needs. And the needs of which we are aware within the church So that in the worship service, there is this fellowship taking place between us and the living God. And at the heart of that covenant fellowship is conversation that takes place between God and us. Yet let us understand that conversation is and must be holy conversation. For we are called to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. 
In worship, we find fellowship with the Holy One. And our worship, therefore, must be holy worship. We are called literally to bow with our faces to the earth before Jehovah in the splendor of his holiness. Let's remember, people of God, we worship Jehovah, who is transcendent in his glory, the one absolutely set apart. That's the meaning of his holiness. And the entire psalm, as does Psalm 95, resounds with that truth. The psalmist calls us to worship in that consciousness. Bless the name of Jehovah, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. And you have essentially the same thing in Psalm 95. Look at who God is. Bow before him. God is sovereign. We are but creatures. It's an astounding privilege that we are called to enter his presence and that he would converse and communicate to us, with us. Because again, that God is holy means he's set apart. Completely consecrated to himself and his own glory. We are to worship him in the consciousness that we stand before the splendor of his holiness. We sinful people stand in the presence of the holy God. And that means we recognize we don't approach him as his equals. In the first place, God himself is so infinitely glorious and set apart that we read in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, verse 3, even the angels cover their faces with their wings, crying, holy, holy, holy is Jehovah of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You and I must approach God in deep humility. When I said that the term worship means to bow with your face toward the earth, that's of great significance. That's how we are to approach God in our thinking. We come into the presence of him who is perfectly holy. And therefore we come not simply as creatures before the creator. We come to him as sinners before our redeemer. Notice in the first verse of Psalm 95, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. That must be our consciousness too. Else... We will not worship him who alone is Jehovah. We'll worship one of our own imagination. If we come before him as if he is our equal, we profane him. We make him common. 
And that's exactly the violation of the third commandment. Where we are forbidden to take his name in vain, we do that. You know that, don't you? We do that all too often. We sit here in worship with our minds wandering sometimes. We sing the Psalter numbers without, without even thinking about the words we are singing. We don't concentrate during prayer. Maybe we even doze off. And in doing so, we profane the holy name of God, violate that commandment. Shall we confess that? It's amazing God even lets us worship him. There's nothing in us that makes us fit for covenant fellowship with him. We who are conceived and born in sin, who sing with the psalmist in Psalm 65 that our iniquities prevail against us daily by our sins, forfeit all right to covenant fellowship with God. That he is pleased to gather us and dwell with us and converse with us is the great wonder of his everlasting mercy and love in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because God can only dwell in fellowship with those who are holy, as he is holy. And you and I are holy only as we stand by faith in Jesus Christ and as he lives in us by his Spirit. And for that very reason, as we worship God in the beauty of holiness, we do so recognizing that that holy conversation is always initiated by God himself. Before we even come to the sanctuary, God says, seek ye my face. And our hearts say, thy face, Lord, will I seek. And so we come confessing from the start our help is in the name of Jehovah who made heaven and earth. That's why those in whom God does not work cannot possibly worship him. Though they can put on an appearance of worship. Sometimes even an enthusiastic appearance of worship. But the man or woman who is outside of Christ, who has not a true and living faith, cannot possibly worship Jehovah. Worship is is only the response to God which is worked in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. Our worship, when it is true spiritual worship, is the fruit of God's powerful word. And that's very clearly taught in Psalm 27, verse 8. When thou said, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. God is sovereign in all the work of salvation. He's sovereign in the establishment and realization of his covenant of grace. 
He's sovereign in that worship, which is the highest manifestation of that covenant fellowship. So when God says to your regenerated heart, seek ye my face, his speech is powerful, efficacious, irresistible. And therefore you enter the conversation. You worship him in the beauty of holiness. If we understand this, people of God, if we understand, if we enter the sanctuary in the awareness that we come as sinners saved by grace into the presence of the Holy Jehovah, that will have a profound impact on how we worship. No saint can enter God's presence in worship and experience the riches of God's fellowship without being deeply conscious of his own unworthiness and the depth of God's mercy and grace. You might use that as a gauge in measuring how your own participation in worship measures up to this biblical standard. How conscious are you of your own unworthiness to be here and the riches of God's love and mercy revealed to you in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the result of that knowledge will indeed be a hearty desire to praise Jehovah. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Verse 4. Furthermore, to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness is to worship in such a way that the entire worship service is consecrated to him. That he condescended to be approached by sinners, to allow men and women who have rebelled against him to enter his presence and be received by him in worship is an absolutely amazing and gracious work of God. But let's understand, he also determines how we are to worship him. And that's what the second commandment of the ten is all about. How shall we worship God? Thou shalt not make thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. He's jealous of his own honor, of his holiness. And for that reason, he tells us in his word how we are to worship him. We observe in our day a terrible departure from this truth. Scripture tells us we are to worship God in the hearing of the word of God, in song and prayer and offerings and sacraments. But people in our day want more. They want new modes of revelation. 
entertainment, drama, it's presumption. Because what it says is that worship must be pleasing to me, not to God. To many it has become a light thing to approach the living God. And in presumption, they assume that God will accept any way of our invention, so long as it's sincere. So you ask people about worship, and they say, I think we should have this. I think we should do this. I like this. I find this boring. I, I, I. And where is God in the beauty of his holiness? God forbid that we approach him with such presumption. Setting our own self-seeking opinions above the very will of the holy God. But let's also understand such sin is not seen only in those who have rejected the word of God for human inventions in the worship services. Can it also be, beloved, that we have become so familiar with coming to the house of God that we don't even look anymore to note what is pleasing to him, why we worship the way we do? How must we approach the living God in worship? Listen to Psalm 95, verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. He alone is the one to whom we look and before whom we bow in worship. But that means not only that we are restricted to God's own will as to how we shall worship him, it also means that our worship must not be offered to God in a superficial manner. Half-hearted worship is an abomination to him. Terrible are those words spoken by the Lord through his prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel and repeated by Jesus. This people worships me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Holiness must characterize our worship in every respect. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, for the Lord our God is holy. Psalm 99, verse 9. And so we are to worship him in fear, fear before him all the earth. That call is a call to the church, let that be understood. The expression all the earth marks this call as belonging to the church as she is to be gathered from all nations, tribes and tongues, indeed from the entire face of the earth. This psalm is one of the great missionary hymns 
of the Psalms. One of many prophecies in the Old Testament where Israel was pointed to the universal nature of the body of Christ. You notice that in verse 3, declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. The many languages of the sons of Adam who were scattered at Babel will all blend in the same song of praise when the Lord gathers his Zion. And with that understood, we may understand the concept then of fearing Jehovah. That's not the fear of terror. Because this call to fear the Lord comes in the context of our relationship with him. We're mindful of what John writes in in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, namely that perfect love casts out fear. Fear in the sense of terror. There is no fear in the sense of terror, being afraid of rejection and damnation. Not when we stand in relationship to this holy God by faith in Christ Jesus. Our relationship with Jehovah has been perfectly established by the blood of Jesus Christ the righteous, accomplished in his cross. And therefore, because the reference cannot be to the terror of judgment, we recognize this fear refers to standing before the the holy Jehovah with a deep sense of love and adoration. But the term used here in Psalm 96 verse 9 is striking. Because the word translated fear in this text is different from the word usually translated fear. In fact, this word is only twice translated fear in the Old Testament. And the other is found in 1 Chronicles 16 verse 30 where you have almost a parallel song to this psalm. That word in the picture language of the Hebrews, is a word that pictures a woman squirming, writhing in the pain of delivering a child. You realize that in labor, a woman is not comfortable. Her mind isn't wandering She's not daydreaming. She's certainly not sleeping. She can only think about the labor and the joy that is soon to be fully realized in the birth of her child. And the idea conveyed by this term, therefore, is that in worship before the holy Jehovah, we don't get comfortable, so to speak. In worship, we are focused single-mindedly on the holy God in whose presence we worship and the full realization of his glory as we experience that in worship. Proper worship is to fear Jehovah and to stand before him 
with a focused sense of love and adoration. And when you understand that, people of God, then you realize why your worship twice on the Lord's Day is such hard work. It's labor-intensive because it involves a labor of the mind that's not typically ours from day to day. Single-minded focus on the glory of our holy God, who he is and what he has done for us, Such fear of God is to be so captivated by this great salvation that he has given us in Christ Jesus that we can only fall before him in amazement and deep reverence to praise and extol him who has been so merciful to us. And this deep love for God, awe, and reverence toward him is also expressed in a deep concern to live as obedient sons and daughters in his household. That also belongs to proper worship. We don't come here just to be hearers of the word and not doers. We must be motivated in our worship by a strong desire to do that which is pleasing in God's sight according to the will of him who saved us. I say again, worship is not self-serving. When the fear of the Lord is lacking in us, and let us confess it's often lacking, when that fear of Jehovah is lacking, we use the name of God in vain. We become guilty of, of intolerable arrogance. Our worship must reflect the fear of Jehovah, profound reverence, a desire to do his will, to hear what he has to say to us. When he expresses this is how I would have you live to show your thankfulness to me. We don't just walk out the door and shrug it off, do we? Not if we truly worship. From the moment we step through the doors of the sanctuary, and in fact several hours before, we must humble ourselves before the great Jehovah seeking his face. The prayers that we offer upon entering the sanctuary, seeking his blessing upon the worship service and upon the preaching of the word, seeking the application of the Holy Spirit to our own hearts, the songs that we sing, the hearing of the gospel, all the elements of the worship service must express that awe of Jehovah God without which it's impossible to please him. And when such fear is present, 
when we enter into fellowship with the Holy One and the knowledge of our relationship with him in Jesus Christ, we shall enjoy the blessedness of his favor and love. Oh, to taste of the wonder of his grace in taking us into his covenant fellowship. Our worship is so weak, beloved. We fall so far short of this word of God. We ought to hide our faces in shame. But we come before him in Christ. And when that's true, we not only confess our sins and receive his merciful forgiveness, but we thank him for his word, for this instruction he gives us in how to worship him. May God continue to give us grace to put to practice the calling he gives us, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. O oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth, you included. Amen. Our Father in heaven, in deep humility we receive thy word tonight, recognizing that we have grievously failed to worship thee with the worship thou dost deserve and require. We thank thee for the mercy revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord, for taking us into the fellowship of thine own covenant life, giving us this privilege of worshiping thee. Give us to grow in the knowledge of thy greatness and glory and the desire to worship thee in the beauty of holiness to the honor and glory of thy name. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.